Behind the scenes, research makes use of various methods of exploring something that's puzzling the scientists. In this bonus segment, Rhys Creeley and Louise Pierce explain how they build their study of the CIA and its tweets on Twitter. First, they used a so-called critical theory perspective, and second, looked at the tweets with something called discourse analysis. In short, they wanted to explore what it means for society when an intelligence agency builds up an online presence. So one of my ideas with this podcast is to learn more about methodology and the use of theory in research. So I wanted to start by asking you about critical theory. I find it very fascinating, um, but I don't know much about it. So please learn me the ropes. So the, the article we published that's kind of the first part of this finding um, was working on an issue that looked very specifically at critical intelligence studies um, and thinking for but also what we're interested in is how discourse and an understanding of language in the everyday um, contributes to kind of a critical intelligence studies project. And it's kind of critical in the same two ways that like critical often means, both to look at something more deeply or from a different angle, um, and then critical in the sense of often to take issue with some of the fundamental principles on which it's founded, right? So mm-hmm. For intelligence studies, a lot of it historically has been about looking at the practices of intelligence gathering, of data gathering, of how this intelligence is used. Scholarship there is kind of hoping to improve the practice, improve relationships, um, explore failings, um, and and contribute to that. Whereas I think, to me, a critical intelligence project is more about, or, or the questions I want to interrogate are more of kind of how are these practices possible? Um, how does this field get set up in such a way? Um, what is it that's kind of missed? I think um, loads of research that I do is kind of informed by, so I'm like a feminist researcher, um, and a lot of the work that I do is kind of informed by um, Cynthia Enloe's kind of looking at the margin silences and bottom rungs of international relations. So those things that are otherwise missed or deemed as not important or trivial, and, and how they actually really matter in power politics. So in intelligence studies, it's kind of, that's the angle that interests me. Yeah, I think I I agree with everything that Louisa said, and we have a pretty similar outlook um, in terms of understanding what's critical about critical intelligence studies. Uh, but it's probably, probably worthwhile putting that in context. So um, I guess what we both did before we contributed to this special issue on uh, critical intelligence studies was kind of work in the broader field of critical security studies, which itself is a sub uh, field of international relations more broadly. Um, and international relations as a discipline um, grew grew out of empire, right? It grew out of um, this history of, of trying to support empires and serve, um, serve the state, uh, the nation state. So what we kind of see towards the late kind of 1980s is this critical turn within international relations more generally, where we have uh, lots of scholars, lots of feminist scholars, especially kind of saying, hey, uh, the way that we're studying the world and trying to uh, basically justify what states do and help states do what they do better isn't actually having a positive impact. 
Uh, and what we need to do instead is critically analyze and reflect uh, upon what states are doing. So it's about trying to understand how the world can be otherwise. Uh, and in intelligence studies, for example, um, it's traditionally been uh, a discipline or, or an area of research that has been written about by former intelligence personnel. So it's there's lots of kind of former spies and spooks um, or people that have worked for intelligence agencies end up writing about um, either what they did or about other interesting things uh, in the world of intelligence. Um, and often they come from this kind of problem solving perspective where they're trying to study this stuff so that they can um, improve what intelligence agencies do in a sense of like, um, you know, we can gather better intelligence if we do X, Y, and Z. Uh, whereas what critical intelligence studies tries to do is look at, um, kind of problematize the field of intelligence itself and kind of look at how um, lots of what intelligence agencies do is, is really bad and has a really negative impact on the world. Um, mm -hmm. So that's what we're trying to contribute to basically is uh, not accepting, not doing research that benefits intelligence agencies, but tries to uh, understand and unravel the, the mm. broader societal implications of, of what they get up to, I guess. Right. So can you tell about, first of all, like this empirical work that you did? Uh, you, you have tweets from a couple of years, actually. Yeah. So I, uh, so after I finished my PhD, I was um, very fortunate to get a one year teaching fellowship at the University of Warwick. Um, and they were, they had a, a, a fund of money available for staff uh, to, to pay for a research uh, assistant to help them on, on a project. Um, and I, I had seen what the CIA was doing on Twitter and I thought, oh, that's really interesting. Um, and I want to kind of analyze that in a bit more depth. So um, I worked with a wonderful research assistant called Asya and um, together we kind of put together a spreadsheet, basically just, it was, it was manually done, just going back through the CIA's timeline and uh, copying and pasting all the information into the spreadsheet, basically, um, you know, what the tweet contained, uh, how many retweets and likes it got, etc. Um, and then uh, we went through and coded them according to their, their theme. So we have this big spreadsheet of, of all these tweets um, mm -hmm. that we, yeah, eventually I didn't, I didn't do anything with it for, for a few years because I just didn't have the time and didn't really know uh, right. what to do uh, with it all. So then um, I spoke to Louise early last year I said to Louise, hey, like, I've got this data. Um, do you want to have a look at it? And maybe if you find it interesting, we can do something together with it. Um, so then we sat down and uh, had a look through it on Zoom and chatted about some of the interesting things, uh, put together a, a different document of like the most popular tweets and, and then decided to do something on that. Mm -hmm. And how many tweets did you have in this spreadsheet? I think it's nearly 2000, isn't it? Oh my God. Yeah. That's so many, but what, like it, it's a mystery to me then because I'm just starting off and I'm not like, well, you didn't do quantitative either, but here, but anyway, it's, it was, uh, quite the, quite the sample. Like what, what can you explain? Like you have this spreadsheet with so many tweets. What did you do after that? Um, I think that the first important thing for us was sorting it in terms of 
uh, engagement. So we looked at the tweets that were the most popular. And from that, that kind of gave us a, a good way of looking at um, the data in a sort of way that would make sense in terms of how what what was popular so i think that was what was driving the 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 start of the analysis was to kind of look at rather than just kind of going through all of these different codes that we had and all these different events that the cia had tweeted about in this um two-year period was to just be like hey okay what are the most popular tweets like what do people seem to be engaging with and why might they be engaging with them um so that was, I think, the first step, wasn't it? And then I think at the end of the paper, um, there's actually like an yeah. appendix of the top 20 tweets, um, which is what kind of made the focus for the the paper length study. Um, but Louise is currently looking at the data again, and we're going to um, try and write a book, I think. Um, awesome. Oh, that sounds great. Uh, but can you uh, tell us uh, why this was this discourse using uh, discourse analysis then? Uh, on your study, why was it suitable for for this uh, study? Um, I think if you're interested in power and how power is mobilized and how it's um, kind of constructed through what political actors say and do, then discourse analysis is the the method for you um, because it allows you to look at uh, language and visual representations and other forms of representations and, and practices that construct meaning. So it provides you with this structured way of analyzing meaning-making practices. So you can look at uh, language such as you know policy reports, or you can look at tweets, or you can look at films, and you can look at the language that is used in them. Uh, but you can also look at photographs uh, and memes and look at how they represent the world in certain ways in order to claim legitimacy for certain institutions and activities such as intelligence agencies um, and you can look at how these representations construct identities and how they're mobilized in, in certain ways to support different things and it gives you an understanding of I guess these core concepts in international relations such as power legitimacy authority and when you look at what's happening on social media, discourse analysis is uh, a good way of making sense of that type of thing because it's all language, it's all photographs and memes and infographics. Um, so, so yeah, I think that's discourse analysis lends itself to, to understanding the politics of, of social media. Um, yeah, I think that kind of covers it really well. And it's about um, studies that have come, there have been one or two studies that have come before us that have looked at intelligence um, agencies use of kind of social media and they typically take a much more kind of quantitative approach um, and kind of put into section kind of what what the content is like what's what it's about which has been useful and that they were a good starting point for us to move from but what this course analysis is doing differently is looking at kind of the meaning that's produced and I think it it's it goes back to kind of the, the question that we talked about earlier about kind of the the level of intent in the actors and I think I'm not really that concerned it's kind of I'm not taking them at the face value that when they tweet about this particular historical artifact from the museum it's because that was the one that you know they had in their hands that day I'm more interested in the fact that yes but when you tweeted about um shark repellent for example this one that I've just read really recently like 
what does that do to what people think the CIA is like? And and um, discourse analysis is a way to kind of say that you're not kind of just taking. It's is the is a, the best method for me to kind of do these kind of conditions of possibility questions. But like, how is it possible that dot dot dot? And discourse analysis is concerned with kind of these ideas, the things that lie behind this, and and kind of yes, yeah, and kind of a critical method to do that. And yeah, it it also allows you to to look at social media responses in in a similar way to how you look at the stuff that the CIA tweets out, right? So you look at you can look at replies as a, a source of discourse themselves, and, and you can analyze them in the same way that you, that you analyze CIA tweets. So you can and you can look at the resonance and or the intertextuality between them, in terms of do people reply to the CIA in a way that seems to accept the hegemonic meaning of the tweet so do they do they um find the cia stuff funny for example um or or do they challenge it do they contest it like looking at these two kind of looking at the social media statements of institutions and social media responses on the other hand um allows you to to look at the construction of identity and representation in both of these places so it kind of i think it's a great tool for for looking at um social media especially if you're you're a student and um you don't necessarily have the the computer science skills that you might need to to do like big um surveys of scraping tweets and analyzing them in certain ways um if you're interested in the politics of social media um discourse analysis is a really handy way of of looking at stuff in a, um, I guess, an accessible way. Yeah, and interesting what you say about this, um, the dialogue that they're creating because you you might you can do a discourse analysis on a on like a, a text in a book, but but on social media you have like you say also the the comments and the the reactions there, so so that's very fascinating. Coming back to you mentioned about this quantitative um, analysis and that. There is a temptation to to look at that, but you didn't. Yeah, and I think that the the more kind of quantitative studies that have been on how intelligence agencies use social media have tended to lump lots of things together in this kind of miscellaneous category, which is where you have the kind of the pop culture stuff. Um, whereas for us, it's that category itself which is the most interesting. It's like the random tweets about Tupac, the random tweets about hashtag CIA cat. Uh, these things that if you were doing this kind of quantitative coding of like how many tweets are about topic x y and z you'd kind of be like okay well just these tweets are all a bit kooky a bit weird like i'll just put them in this big broad category and it's actually like no if we look at those tweets in in more depth uh qualitatively we're gonna see some really interesting things um so so yeah i think that's why it, uh, we we had this um discursive approach in our study eventually there probably will be some introduction of numbers because it helps when you've got this many to break it down right to talk about um the numbers of tweets and things that done like that but because because we are motivated by kind of meaning and what's beneath it for the analysis we've done numbers alone won't do that so they can tell you what's there and they can group it in particular ways but they can't kind of Statistics won't do the kind of um, unpacking of the meaning in the way that we're interested in doing it. 
which isn't to say that yeah there isn't a, a place of both of those things to work together and I think increasingly as I go back over I think there'll be some kind of introduction about that to help us process the information but it doesn't answer the kind of research questions as set right and that's what's um I often teach research methods so you asking the right questions because it's one of my favorite things to talk about but it's about the fit right between the questions that you're trying to ask and then the ways that you go about answering them so I'm not saying that you couldn't do a quantitative analysis of this exact same data set but that I just think it would answer very different questions. Right. I wanted to just a, a short question about uh, or maybe it's not so short but, but it's on top of my head like formulating a research question and how fundamental it is for everything you will do after having that question set. What kind of process did you have? Yeah, so I think um, our research wasn't driven necessarily by specific research questions right at the outset, more of a sense of unease or a sense of puzzlement at like, what's the CIA doing on on Twitter? Like, why is this institution that is responsible for state secrets openly tweeting about what it's doing? Um, so this kind of broad puzzle, I think, drove the initial research. Um, I guess from there, you, we, we collected and, and analyzed the data and you begin to formulate, I guess, more narrower, more specific research questions. So... So yeah, and I guess they're kind of determined by your methodological view of the world, but also by the methods that you think you're going to use. When we looked through the data, we began to formulate the research questions, which I think referred to how does the CIA use um, Twitter to represent itself? Um, and then the second one was about how do audiences respond? So um, I think the first question there is influenced by our understanding of discourse analysis and the types of questions that you look at with discourse analysis. And then the second question was influenced, I think, by the way that Louise and myself are interested in audiences and how one of our main contributions that runs throughout our both of our work, I think, is to look a bit beyond the normal discourse analysis of how state actors might represent themselves and look at how audiences actually respond to um, those uh, representations. It's also worth flagging that all of this and this research process and all research processes are messy and iterative, right? So you have a general idea of the research question and you go about uncovering that and then actually something completely unexpected comes up and you realise that you want to move in that direction. You're going to go back to a research question and change it, right? And I think there has to be a certain level of kind of iteration and flexibility to notice something that's really interesting and then be prepared to decide whether you want to go back and change what you're looking at or, or refocus it or just not look at that bit right now but yeah I think that's all interesting because I think in this kind of deep dive of the data that I'm doing where I'm going back over some of the ideas that we're interested in it kind of throws up new new questions and, and new things that are fascinating that, that we'll want to talk about in more detail hmm. and they can only like surface by diving deep into that material so yeah yeah it's yeah i think you shouldn't um especially if you're a student don't think don't feel that you'd have to have uh, a really clear succinct research question necessarily at the start of your project um of course it's really helpful to have something that's quite narrow and focused but 
um, I think most good research in international relations um, or from the people that I know um, quite well starts from this general sense of unease or puzzlement or wonder about something and it's kind of the research process is then as Louise said messy and and you you set out thinking you're going to look at this question but then when you gather the data and when you analyze it um, or when you do your research it kind of becomes clear you're actually looking at a different question and that's that's fine like it's not um, like that's just part of the messy world of, of, of research.